Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, I'm going to be suing Twitter, so let me tell you what happened. Pacifica host, deep dive political analyst, and contributor to the show, Garland Nixon, is fired up against Twitter and invites others to join him. And what may involve U.S. intelligence collusion with Twitter against Garland that could be revealed in the discovery phase of his planned litigation, and possible connections to having, quote, a history with Tony Blinken. Let's give a listen. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon, and I'm going to use this caveat for now. <laughs> but plenty to talk about. First, oh my gosh, I got another saga. I've got another saga. And I'm going to actually be suing Twitter. And I don't mean a lot of people say they're going to sue Twitter. But if you know anything about me, it wouldn't be the first uh, legal action that I've taken or taken on my own. So let me let me tell you what happened. So if you're familiar with Twitter, you know, you can have a Twitter account and you can have a verified Twitter account where you get a blue check mark, right? And that means that if somebody sees, let's just say your name is, I don't know, Madonna, and you've got a, a Twitter account that's Madonna, you get verified and you get a blue check mark by your name and everybody knows that's the real Madonna. It's not somebody posing as Madonna. That's how they know it's the real person. So I've got a Twitter uh, account, of course, you know, doing it, being that I do radio and all that stuff. Um, somebody might try to, you know, impersonate me. So I got a, cert a, a verified. That is, uh, I pay, I think, $11 a month you have to pay. And they say, do you want to be verified? Yes. And then they'll say, send us your name, address, phone number, date of birth, blah, 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 blah. You send them all of that. And then a couple of days later, Twitter sends you a um, Twitter sends you, you know, a, a message. Congratulations. You're verified. And what that means is that um, you have a blue check mark, and everybody who goes to your Twitter account knows that guy's saying he's Garland Nixon. He's got a blue check mark. It's a verified account. It's verified. That's Garland Nixon. We know that's the real Garland Nixon. Meanwhile, Garland Nixon pays Twitter, 8, 11, whatever it is. Um, it's on auto pay. I pay Twitter monthly for the privilege of being verified. So they know it's me and that everybody knows that it's me. And I get other privileges when you're paying a paid customer. There's other privileges that you get. But you're a verified account. Okay. Well, let me just say this. So I believe there is censorship afoot. At, and, and other issues afoot at Twitter, because here's what happened. Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, tweets, hey, I lost my parent, my grand ancestors in the Holocaust, and which is a terrible thing, certainly. I mean, horrible Holocaust, right? So blah, blah, blah. So I tweet back. So I replied to that tweet because the, you, Tony Blinken is one of the lead sponsors of the Nazis in Ukraine and not neo-Nazis. They're real Nazis. They're self-avowed Nazis. They're people who walk around with Hitler tattoos on. They use all the iconography of the Third Reich. They are very, very proud Nazis. People here are like, they're not Nazis. They're proud to be Nazis, right? So he's supporting Nazis. So when he puts up a tweet that says, hey, you know, um, it's a terrible thing. I lost uh, ancestors. I lost whatever in the uh, in the Holocaust. And I reply, they'd be rolling over in their graves if they knew that you were supporting Nazis today, the very people that killed them. All right, that was fair enough. And it's free speech, right? It's fair enough. A couple days later, I get a Twitter a message from Twitter that they can't verify that I am the owner of my account. I literally get a email from Twitter. I, I well, bottom line is I can't log into my account. I go to log into my Twitter account, and something pops up that says, "You have to change the per password. Your Twitter account may have been um, uh, compromised." Now, keep in mind something: I have a history with Tony Blinken. Uh, about a year or so ago, I had a little bit of a running battle. I had a little bit of an issue with Tony Blinken on Twitter where I maybe tweeted some stuff that he didn't like that a lot of people agreed with, but Tony Blinken didn't like, and I got thrown off Twitter for life. Twitter said, you're out of here for life, right? 
Then Elon Musk bought Twitter and he said, hey, I'm letting Garland back on. So I was allowed to come back on Twitter because it was just I went back and forth. I mean, what kind of thing is that where you can't say to your elected officials that your taxes pay their salary, that you can't spar back and forth with them on Twitter as long as I didn't uh, threaten him. I didn't do anything else. I disagreed with him. I made a satirical comment last time I got thrown off Twitter for life. Elon Musk bought Twitter. He said, you can be back on. So this time I make that comment to Tony Blinken. Next thing you know, I I try to um, log into Twitter. It pops up. Oh, you you've got to uh, you've got to uh, have your account may have been compromised. You got to do a new password. Okay. I click reset password and it pops up account suspended or locked. Okay. So you can appeal it. So it went from your comp, your account may be compromised to your account is suspended or locked. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So yeah, do the little thing that drop down box. It says, you know, Hey, um, you know, this is my, uh, this is my, you know, a verified account. I pay for that. Here, this is my email address. This is my account. And um, so let me back in my account. Twitter sends something back and it says, we can't verify. I go back and forth with them. This is my account. No, it's not. This is my account. No, it's not. Twitter sends me something back that says, we can't verify that this is your account. Therefore, you can. it's over. That account's done. You can't. Now, keep in mind something. I got 120,000 or 119,000 followers, 119,000 followers from all over the world. Twitter says you can't ever get into that account again. We can't verify that you are the owner of that account. You can never get into that account again. So trust me when I tell you, know, a lot of people say I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue Twitter and I'm going to ask for my money back. And I'm going to ask for punitive damages. Now, the beauty of filing that suit is that I can ask for lots of information from Twitter. I can find out, gee, could it possibly be? It's called discovery. And then I would send what's called interrogatories. I would send the things that I want. Anything that might have come in from, say, the U.S. State Department that said, hey, get rid of this Nixon guy. I'd like to know, because if in fact something came from the U.S. State Department, that would then mean that the U.S. government is violating my constitutional rights, because what I said was protected speech. I couldn't sue Twitter for violating my protective, for, you know, for violating my First Amendment right. Because it's a private corporation, so I don't have a right with a private corporation. They can throw me off anytime, anytime they want. But if the U.S. government got me thrown off, well, now we have another problem, don't we? And it may be actionable against the U.S. government as well. So when I did my verification through Twitter, right, they asked me your name, address, date of birth, email, blah, blah, blah. Well, if they didn't use it to verify my account, what did they do with that info? They sold it they sold it. And I'm suspecting that they sell it, but I intend to find out what it is that they do with it. So this is going to be interesting. I'm working on it right now, working on my complaint to file to the courts, but I'm suing Twitter. I'm suing Twitter. I'm suing Twitter. But I am going to argue that there's a lot of people out here like that. And if there are other people that want to enjoin you know, and become um, co-plaintiffs in the lawsuit, I will certainly open the door for other people who might want to be plaintiffs in the lawsuit, but I'm going after Twitter. So that's going to be, that's that. That's the long and short of it. Isn't that interesting? And coming up next on Arts Express, Chuck Berry, to me, really started rock and roll. And of course, he was a poet as well. And he sort of invented the teenage audience. And that was British filmmaker and veteran manager of rock artists, John Brewer, talking about his documentary, Chuck Berry, the Original King of Rock and Roll. And he says why during our conversation, phoning him from London. No stranger to exploring the music world on screen, Brewer has also directed films about B.B. King, 
The Moody Blues, Jethro Tull, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and The Doors, Jim Morrison. First, some scenes from Chuck Berry, the original king of rock and roll, then John Brewer. Chuck Berry was Chuck Berry. The definition of Chuck Berry is Chuck Berry. If you were to try to try and give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry. He is the most important guitarist in rock history. He could tell you a full story in three minutes lyrically. If he couldn't think of a word, he would just make one up. Coolerator. Botheration. Motivating. Everyone wants Maybelline, Maybelline. Well, the music is just too powerful to be denied. And you could almost say Chuck Berry invented the teenager. Black records wasn't getting played on, 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 on white stations even at that period. He was the first inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mr. Berry. Dino Mike. We went to record at the legendary Chess Studios. When we were in the studio, we met Money Waters, Chuck Berry. Started that whole hip-hop tradition. <laughs> Back then, he was a gangster, the first gangster. <laughs> you know, Chuck Berry was a character that Charles Edward Anderson Berry played. When he came home, he was the man I married. The money goes in the case, then the guitar comes out. <laughs> yeah, he's the man, for sure. He's giving me more headaches than Mick Jagger. quite a few music documentaries. So what led you to make your latest film about Chuck Berry? Well, when I was in New Orleans at the film festival down there, um, I had just finished the B.B. King documentary, and I had intended to basically go down to St. Louis and basically talk to, to Chuck Berry. And um, uh, everyone tried to put me off because... It's just only security. He was a difficult man. There were problems. And actually, um, if I had investigated, I would have probably found out that he wasn't very well. So the thing was, I went back to England, and suddenly um, he passed away. And um, it was then that I was determined. So about a few months later, I got hold of um, uh, his lawyers, and found myself investing in publishing and what have you. And the next thing that I found out was that um, uh, we had the green light. Now, the reason why, and I'm sure everybody knows this, is that to somebody that actually knows a lot about the music industry and, and music, Chuck Berry was very responsible for creating or giving reason to create for many bands um, uh, a simple way to go and record rock and roll, which became known as rock and roll, but it was like three chord uh, songs that basically created that rock and roll sound. And uh, to me, he really definitely started rock and roll. And um, of course, he was a poet as well. So at the end of the day, you had great lyrics. Um, big Americana, and uh, it, it was directed towards uh, what we refer to now as a teenage audience. And uh, he sort of invented the teenager. So that's, that's why I was so interested, and also he's brought so much pleasure to me personally in my lifetime that I thought he must be the one to try and basically make a great documentary on and how would you compare and contrast Chuck Berry's influence on music here in the U.S. with his impact on musicians in the U.K.? Um, well, um, that's a very good question. The um, it, I think I think his music was received in a completely different way in America, and there was a, as a there was many problems that were Americans faced 
at that time uh, that English people didn't really face, or British or German or French or whatever. And there's a big uh, race problem, and um, it was exceedingly difficult to get black musicians or artists played on white radio. Now, over here, we didn't really sort of have that problem. And especially in the rest of the world, they didn't sort of have that problem. And so, therefore, certain times it was much easier to get um, the Chuck, Chuck Berry-type music to be heard in the rest of the world than it was in America. But he did something that was very clever. He was a great fan of Nat King Cole. And his pronunciation of words became, which, of course, Nat was a master at, um, influenced him, and he omitted he that. And a lot of um, producers, radio jocks and what have you, thought he was white. So they booked him, and basically on television shows, and basically they played his record because they all thought he was white at one stage. And somehow that brought in uh, and broke down that barrier. And so uh, America was influenced, I think, by the lyrics because he wrote lyrics that related to continually to what I said, that teenage audience or that, that period of life that those kids had was, you know, teens. Um, and it, it took off like a bang. And in England and the rest of the world, which lyrics actually don't play a large part at that time, they do now, but they didn't in that time. I suppose language was, a, uh, you know, foreign languages had a big play in that. And also the fact is that although English, England was a springboard, um, uh, it certainly didn't take off because of the Americana and also the the uh, problem with radio. But it, it, it was a little slow to take off over here. But when it did... It was here to stay. Now, that influenced bands. And oh, we know that because many bands uh, through the years have said, this is why we went in and created a band or went into the music industry or whatever it was from the influence of this great man, Chuck Berry. And we have examples of it. Stone, um, you know, People didn't really look at the writer on the on the vinyl that came through and see who the publisher was and the, the, the who wrote the song. They thought they were all the Rolling Stones had written them. But of course, if you look at the albums, it's Berry, 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 and eventually somebody cottoned on and said, "Look, this guy's great. We we, we want to do more songs like this." And then people copied, and uh, so it influenced a lot of people, like the Kinks. It influenced the Stones. It influenced. I mean, there's lists of them, and um, and they're, they're, you know, if you watch the film, the film will tell you that uh, that some of those people, some of them are quite unlikely candidates because um, you will see in the film that they speak out and say how, for instance, Gene Simmons from Kiss completely influenced him to pick up. Uh, uh, an instrument and be involved and uh, cre create what he created and his band created. And, of course, the Stones is also... And what most surprised you about Chuck Berry in the course of your research for your film? Uh, well, that, that's, that's also a very good question. Um, I, uh, everything that everybody had told me, I found out wasn't true at all. Mm -hmm. Because... He was very much a gentleman, although I didn't speak to him directly. But everybody that I talked to said, no, he wasn't violent. He wasn't basically aggressive. He just wanted things done his way. And um, I don't think he... I think he was definitely a stubborn man. Uh, but I got, got this picture, and I think a lot of people got a picture that he was very aggressive, very argumentative, and apart from anything else, um, was known for basically violence. And I just went, well, I'd never found that. Close family and also his advisors and his people. 
and um, you know his fellow. Uh, you know, not that he had many musicians, he never, we had a band, but I mean, you know, he picked up a lot of musicians, but those that were involved with him said he, he was the sweetest man you could ever meet. Um, I met his wife, his widow, unfortunately, um, she basically uh, uh, was very nervous, but she did do the first interview she'd ever done, because he never allowed her to do an interview. And um, she came over and sort of laid down the story. And uh, the film captures that story of this, this guy all the way through his life. And, um, you know, she made it very clear that uh, when he walked into the house, he was uh, Charles Berry. And when he was walked out of the house to go on the road, he was Chuck Berry. And uh, what happened on the road and... Uh, that created his um, his artist, which was a fictitious artist in his mind, stayed on the road. Whether that was justification or not, I don't know, and nobody ever will know, because Charles is the only one that really knows that. But that was pretty well um, supported through the interviews. And also in terms of your observations, what can you say about Chuck Berry politically in terms of his racial consciousness, but not joining as an activist in the civil rights movement? Well, um, I can say quite a lot. The, uh, but, you know, to, to keep it short, mm -hmm. he was very angry, a very angry man. And I think he despised the fact that he was, before he'd even probably picked up a guitar, um, was, uh, uh, because of the system at that time, abused in many ways. He, totally his fault, because uh, when I say his fault, he, like many uh, black people at that time, they found a way to... Um, deal with the problem at hand but he didn't and he was a bit of a wild one and he landed himself uh, in a sort of uh, penitentiary school type thing for wayward kids uh, but he served his time and he came out of that and uh, of course then he had this success the success was mainly um, due to uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and he himself had uh, hit records. And I think he then had, uh, uh, he then took the opportunity to start using a lot of his money, because he was earning a lot of money, to say that and to do what he wanted to do. Now, taking a, an underage minor across a state line. Uh, the true story of that came out in my in my um, investigations, and of course, uh, a lot of it, it 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 was it was to stop people taking minors over due to prostitution and for prostitution use. He had actually started a bar in St. Louis, and he wanted he liked this girl, and he basically thought she help make an attraction to the bar and he took her over and gave her a job now uh, he, they, they caught him doing that and apparently they threw the man act at him and I think that annoyed him intensely too when they closed the club down because they, well they didn't close the club down he eventually closed it down because uh, the, it was totally um, mixed race and the St. Louis people didn't like what was going on, uh, the white people in St. Louis. And I think the system basically got to him. Now, in his own way, I must tell you, through the music, what I also found out was that the shows at that time in clubs, which was mainly clubs, and then they went on to the theaters, but at this stage it was the clubs, had a rope down the middle. And the black audience was on the left-hand side and the white audience was on the right-hand side. And there were police there to make sure that that's how it stayed. But he would carefully, in his act, move from the left to the right, from the right to the left. 
trying to get those who were dancing in front of him, because there were a lot of records or a lot of songs that he created that you can't help dance to, to mingle, and the rope eventually came down. And that had a lot to do in his way of getting uh, a, a, a result in, um, in dealing with the race problem at that time. And I think that also he opened this club to stop it in his way because, you know, there weren't any mixed-race clubs at that time in St. Louis. And also there was a cinema that he bought, um, and he bought it because basically uh, he hated the fact that blacks could uh, only use the cinema on one of the days per week or whatever it was. So he bought it. And, of course, then he ended up buying a restaurant that he was turned away from. So in his own way, he really annoyed the system because the fact is he was saying, all right, fine, if you're not going to disturb me, I'll buy the restaurant. And that's what he did. I mean, he went back, took him a couple of years, and he did so. So in his own way, he was creating a breakdown. And also music, the music was just too good. And um, and eventually it found its way to to stop all the criticism that was being thrown at him and the black people and black musicians. I mean, it was absurd. Now, with your films about Cream, The Moody Blues, Kurt Cobain, Jethro Tull, Hendrix, B.B. King, Nat King Cole, and Jim Morrison, would you say these choices are by design or coincidence? Um well, certainly by design, because I designed them. But the thing is that, uh, are you talking about that 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 era or that? No, I just meant know, in terms of your choices. Is there like a common thread in your choices? Uh, originally, the classic artist series, which was the a lot of the in a lot of the uh, films that you mentioned, were some of the greatest artists that had crossed over and brought and were influenced by blues. And they crossed over and, and sold the blues to the Americans that had created it. And if you at that, that time had gone, you know, when Cream started, had gone over to America and in general had said, oh, do you know about the blues? Oh, yeah, but it's, a very, it's not very influential. And that would have been the case. And it wasn't until a lot of these English bands went and played it in their way uh, did it get very popular? But um, I wanted to, to uh, because I felt that at that time a lot of the real musicians were dying uh, that we had created or they were going to. I didn't want those fantastic stories of how they came together to be lost. And so I spent a good 15 years of my life doing those films. And they are documented. I mean, there are very few of those artists that have films, um, uh, proper films, made uh, about them. I mean, Cream, the only one, is, is my film. Um, but it, 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 coincidentally, it did happen as well because some of them, uh, some people that I wanted to do didn't want it done. Some people then came to me and said, would you do it? And so, you know, at the end of the day, and also a lot of those artists, majority of those artists, I had an interest because I was around in those days and I basically was very involved with the industry. So I knew I was able to get through to the artist uh, much easier than most interviewers would ever have done because I talked the same language. Now, you mentioned that black musicians in the U.K. hadn't had the same problems as in the U.S., but they have had problems such as Jimmy Cliff and his song, exemplified in his song, Many Rivers to Cross, which has played a lot in terms of the deportations of Jamaicans from the U.K., and I was wondering if you could comment on that. There were many. Billy Ocean, who I used to manage, had problems. There were a lot of black musicians that had problems over here, but it was really looked at it in a different way. Uh, there were movements uh, that came together that tried to basically, especially 
uh, in the 70s, 60s, late 60s and 70s, that were an overspill of peace and love that had no, that was the opposite of that. They just wanted to basically uh, conspire aggression, you know. And that basically was directed at not only black artists, but uh, brown-skinned uh, people. And at the end of the day, I think the British people thought, hang on a second, this is all changing and we don't like change. Getting back to Chuck Berry, what do you see as Chuck Berry's enduring musical legacy? Um, I think it will be forever. I think that Chuck Berry created a style of music that was developed in an extreme way by many, many musicians and artists, and therefore basically will go on forever. And I think that the young people today, and I know for fact, because we get so many inquiries in here from uh, early 20s and even younger, that are interested in Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry was very simple. He made music that made you move. And it was the way it was produced also was an interesting concept too because it made you move of course there were ballads of course there were all sorts of things he tried out but the fact is the truth is that he got people up on the dance floor or people would as certain people have said in the past that stopped their car when it was playing on the radio just to dance around i mean it had that influence when we shot the music we were in the middle of shot the film rather we were in the middle of a uh, uh, Californian desert down there, and we basically, in the middle of the night, had these big bins, uh, speakers, big speakers, because yeah, we were using some techniques when we were shooting the live, uh, what we call cutaways. And nobody could stand still on the set. And I just said, that's because as soon as you put on uh, uh, one of his famous classic songs, you start moving. And I think that, I think that will go on forever. And are you working on anything next? Yes, we are. Yes. A film about Link Ray, and we are working on a film um, about the sixth member of the Rolling Stones. But uh, it's not easy to get these films successfully shown uh, when we, I call them uh, feature documentaries, uh, but that world is changing anyway. Well, thank you so much, John Brewer, for calling into the show. Well, thank you for calling me. All right. Thank you so much, Perry. Okay, bye. Bye. And Chuck Berry, the original king of rock and roll, is out on DVD.
across the street to save a puppy. Awesome. Express, those on the picket lines right now are not simply fighting for fair labor contracts and streaming residuals, they're fighting for the very future of cinema. Brett Gregory at our UK desk in a discussion with film professor Dominic Lees at the University of Reading, delving into how artificial intelligence, among other things, is impacting on film and television. And the current union strikes against Wall Street-controlled Hollywood East and West. First, a look at what's going down with Brian Cranston, alias Walter White, seemingly in his Breaking Bad persona, over at the picket lines in progress. Our industry has changed exponentially. We are not in the same business model that we were even 10 years ago. And yet even though they admit that that is the truth in today's economy, they are fighting us tooth and nail to stick to the same economic system that is outmoded, outdated. They want us to step back in time. We cannot and we will not do that. What we have put forth in the negotiations is not unreasonable. It is not unfair. And I find it very, very um, ironic that we are all gathered here today in unity in front of an entity that is run by Disney. And we've got a message for Mr. Iger. I know, sir, that you look through things through a different lens. We don't expect you to understand who we are. But we ask you to hear us, and beyond that, to listen to us. When we tell you we will not be having our jobs taken away and giving to robots, we will not have you take away our right to work and earn a decent living. And lastly, and most importantly, we will not allow you to take away our dignity. We are union through and through, all the way to the end. Thank you. God bless you. Stay together. We will win this fight. God bless you. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. The SAG-AFTRA strike has been raging now since July 14th, 2023. As my special guest this evening explains, however, those on the picket lines right now are not simply fighting for fair labour contracts and streaming residuals. They are fighting for the very future of cinema itself. Hi, Brett. My name's Dominic Lees, and I'm Associate Professor in Filmmaking at the University of Reading, which is in the southeast of the UK. And my research and my work is all about how artificial intelligence is impacting on the film and television industries. Now, before I entered academia, I was a director of television drama for many years, producing a large amount of TV drama for the BBC and for Channel 4 and independent television in the UK. Excellent, Dominic. You're precisely the man we need. So. Tell us a little bit more about AI. So if we think very broadly about what is artificial intelligence, the key thing is that it's not human or animal intelligence. It's machine-based intelligence. And what's the point? What are the goals? 
The goals of AI research have always been to get computers to do recognisable human um, mental processes. So to try and get a computer to reason, to look for things, to learn, to perceive. You know, these are the kind of key goals of artificial intelligence. I'm starting to get visions of how from 2001. Anyway, when did all this start gaining traction? So back in 2017, there was the breakthrough of deep fakes, and that was a key development of synthetic media. What the developers proved is that you could get a computer to learn about a subject's face and then learn about a target face, and it could then replace one face in the movie image with another. This is a process of feeding hundreds or thousands of images of a subject into the computer. And on that basis, the computer will learn about that face and then doing the same for the target. So as an example, you could feed in thousands of images of Gal Gadot and the computer will understand how her face is moving, how her expressions develop as she speaks. And it will use that knowledge when you come to the next task, which is to replace her face with another actor. I remember this story in the news. It doesn't turn out well. The really unpleasant thing that happened back in 2017 is that the reverse was going on and the first developers of this form of synthetic media used deepfakes to take out the face of porn stars and replace them with actresses such as Gal Gadot. So it became an extremely offensive and destructive use of women's images and the appropriation non-consensually of women's faces into adult movies. So deepfakes got an extremely bad reputation. Indeed. So where do we go from here? I believe we're in a really difficult interim stage. Right now, if you see a video online and you think it might be a deepfake, there's no way you can tell unless you know how to identify the little glitches. But sometimes deepfakes are beautifully made and may be completely convincing. We don't have any processes, any mechanisms, any good practices that media producers have to abide by. But those processes are just beginning. Watermarking of videos is coming in. These will be invisible ways in which um, you can tell whether or not a piece of video has been manipulated. The Content Authenticity Initiative is a great thing, which means that you'll be able to click on a picture and see through the metadata exactly when this was first produced, how this picture has been manipulated in its history before it reaches you. Hmm, still sounds a bit like the Wild West. How is the industry responding? In terms of film and television, I think we're going to agree shared standards of disclosure. We have found that audiences really care about whether or not a filmmaker tells them that they've been using synthetic media. The documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville made a film about Anthony Bourdain called Roadrunner, and in it he used voice cloning, an artificial intelligence process, in order to make it seem like Anthony Bourdain was reading his own email. But Morgan Neville didn't tell his audiences that's what he did. And when it came to light, he found that a really significant part of his audience was really angry that they hadn't been told that this fake artificial intelligence process had been used. And rightly so. But there is the Chechnya story, though, isn't there? David France, when he was making his film Welcome to Chechnya, which was about the genocide of lesbian and gay people in Chechnya, used face replacement technology in order to protect the identities of the subjects of his film. David France gained huge respect for how he'd protected his subjects and also how he made sure that his audience was always aware of the artifice of the face replacement. It was always obvious to us while we were watching it that the faces were not those of the original people. See, conscientious and ethical practice in the media is possible. Please go on. So filmmakers are making up as they go along different ethical approaches to how they use artificial intelligence and how they communicate with their audiences about the use of that artificial intelligence. When common standards have been established across the film and television industries, what will happen is we'll move out of this rather confusing interim period where people really don't know how to use artificial intelligence, audiences don't know whether artificial intelligence has been used in the material that they're watching, 
and we'll enter a period where everything is much more clear. So basically, a rule book. What are your thoughts on fictional filmmaking? You know, the movies. In terms of the film industry, we have to see this development of AI alongside what was already existing there, which is the visual effects industry. So we are very familiar with CGI, computer-generated imagery, being able to create extraordinary scenes, especially in action films. And we've seen thousands of orcs charging down the mountainside, all created through visual effects means. And you can use visual effects to replace the faces of actors who've been recorded in a digital film. Now we're getting somewhere the uncanny. Tell the Star Wars story. More than 20 years before director Gareth Edwards made the Star Wars film Rogue One, Peter Cushing, the actor who played Grand Moff Tarkin, had died. And Gareth Edwards wanted him resurrected in his film. So he shot the scenes for Grand Moff Tarkin with the British actor Guy Henry and then used visual effects processes in order to replace Guy Henry's face with that of Peter Cushing. Now, that's a tremendously expensive process. As you know from watching the credits on blockbuster films, the number of visual effects supervisors credited can be in the hundreds. What artificial intelligence offers the movie industry is quicker and cheaper and perhaps better quality ways of doing the same processes. Baudrillard and hyperreality. That's what I'm thinking right now. In the Industrial Revolution, manufacturers found ways to replace people with a machine's labour, and that was cheaper, so done deal. That's what happened. But in the movies, do we want to replace human images? Do we want to replace actors with synthetic thespians? If we do that, would audiences want to see those synthetic um, characters on screen? Can we emotionally respond to synthetic movie characters? These are questions that are still out there. The owners of the means of reproduction searching for, paradoxically, authenticity. I think you're totally right. I think human authenticity is what we look for in most films. And films that lack that human authenticity are ones that may suffer in the future. In the same way that there's an insignificant portion of the film audience that's sick to death of Hollywood tentpole movies and action sequences and seek out independent films with more meaningful content relevant to our lives today. We may well find the same in the future where we have some movies which are very driven by artificial intelligence generated um, images and a lot of the audience will turn their back on that and look for indie fare. Fingers crossed. So what do you think is going to happen next? What I think is going to happen is that creative producers in the film industry are going to really carefully evaluate artificial intelligence and think about exactly what kind of role they want it to play within movie making. There will be trials and failures. Sometimes it might look like a complete gimmick. Sometimes audiences might really relish it. We have to remember that gimmicks in the movie industry don't last. Look at the experience of 3D film, which has had two upsurges in the history of filmmaking, both of which fizzled out really quite quickly. Yeah, Jaws 3D was rubbish. More recently, if you look at Ang Lee's film Gemini Man, in which Will Smith played himself and he ended up fighting against a younger version of himself, that film failed and cost you know, upwards of $200 million to the studios that produced it. There may have been several other reasons why the film wasn't a success, but the producers clearly thought that Will Smith against Will Smith, using technology to achieve that, would be a really attractive thing for audiences, and they were wrong. That's a shame. I really like Ang Lee as well. Anyway, let's get back to industry. Let's get back to industrial relations. Now, 2022-2023 is the time when everything seems to have changed for artificial intelligence in the film industry. Remember that synthetic media means not just image, but text. And last November, ChatGPT became publicly available. And we've all been playing with that chatbot to generate text. And you can generate film scripts with that, as well as treatments or concepts for movies. And this has meant that artificial intelligence plays an absolutely central role in the disputes between the Writers Guild of America and the producers and studios. See? This is where it all goes dark. What the SAG-AFTRA strike is bringing up is the future of the industry. 
Imagine what it looks like if you're a young actor currently in drama school looking forward to your career. If the prospect for you is that when you go on set on your first movie, you're asked to go into a booth and your image and performance is completely captured for future use, what kind of career could you ever have? Exactly. Let's be really accurate, though, about what's going on in the strike. The Alliance of Motion Picture and TV producers are talking about background actors. And you know how small the image of a background actor is in the frame. Now, artificial intelligence doesn't have much of a problem in replacing a small part of the frame, which is why producers know that the first screen performers that they can replace are the background artists. So leading actors right now are not so threatened by the technology for face replacement. But it's been terrific to see during the strike how most leading actors have been really supportive of the defending the rights of background artists. And they certainly know that the technology isn't going to stop here. It may well develop to a state where it can start replacing leading actors on screen. Mm. Come on, Dominic, give us some good news. I'm really optimistic at the collective action of SAG-AFTRA and the WGA around artificial intelligence, which begins to make me think that creative freelance professionals in the film and television industries will be able to say no to producers when particular demands are made on them around artificial intelligence. There are really terrible levels of financial distress for creative professionals involved. But I think what they're doing is they're creating the building blocks for a future in which artificial intelligence in the movie industry will be used in a more responsible way. That's the spirit. They may take our dignity, but they'll never take our freedom. Nice one, Dominic. You've been great and given us loads of food for thought about this ongoing war between humans and robots. Take care. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express, and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.